Hey, it's Bill Gross. I hope you like this video. If you want to join us live every Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific time, 7 p.m. Eastern, register at probateweekly.com, www.probateweekly.com. And if you like this content, hit the like button and subscribe and hit notifications, and you get notified as soon as we upload every time. Thanks. The forums I'm involved with, I guess a question, you know, can you refer me to an attorney? And, you know, on... Uh, Tuesday, I think it was a week. It was a week of Tuesday. We had Jack Lapidus, local attorney, talked about a real estate attorney, the different great degradations and specialties, and how to find the right kind of attorney for a person. And I came across recently. I met Delar on a matter we were working on together, and I just really liked his approach and style, and wanted to talk to somebody about probate administration versus probate litigation. And today we have a probate litigator. Uh, but also he's to be congratulated on having his first child. You might remember we had his, I used his picture a few weeks ago, not just to promote him because he's so good looking, but I did it because he was going to come on and instead he had his, he and his wife had their first child. So he's to be congratulated for that. Welcome to Probate Weekly, Delar. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Bill. Uh, it's good to be here. So we started, anybody who's watching before we kicked off the call, you went to, to add your name, uh, Probate Litigator. Now I do know that, well, first off, I'll say, the name of your firm, you go by uh, the branding is Lionheart Legal, and that you do estate planning as well as conservatorships and probate and trust litigation. I find it interesting that of all those, you put on your name probate litigator. So explain to me why that one, is that your focus or that's the one you enjoy the most or why that particular nomenclature? Well, um, I mean, litigation can be enjoyable, uh, but the enjoyable moments are few and far between. Um, However, it is um, it is kind of a niche, and um, there there aren't a ton of probate litigators in Los Angeles County, and the ones who um, primarily practice in probate litigation, like myself, we we kind of all know each other, we recognize each other's names, we um, I would I we used to say we see each other in court all the time, but now it's more like we hear each other on the. <laughs> own in court all the time um so it's most of my cases are litigated cases um i don't know why it worked out that way but that, that's just kind of my experience and my reputation developed in 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 kind of the litigation realm more than anything else so um you know i'll i'll, I'll own it i'll own the title <laughs> so let's talk about probate litigation first um a little bit more when people come to me with a situation that requires litigation, the thing I try to explain to them before I refer them to somebody is there's no way to know what it's going to cost, but it's most likely going to cost a lot. Yeah. So when somebody walks to you and says, hey, I had this probate case, my brother's stealing this or whatever, or I won't get a probate it, but my brother's accusing me of stealing it, and he hired an attorney. How do you handle it? And, and, and it, it, I don't mean to crass and say it all comes down to money, but to a lot of people, that is a, a barrier to get over. How do you handle kind of upfront expectations of what somebody should expect when they're facing litigation. Um, it, it's it's very important, I think, for an attorney to set a client's expectations ahead of time. Often I find myself talking people out of bringing a lawsuit because, um, because I'm so upfront about these things. I like to tell them, um, you know, without knowing about any specific situation, I tell pretty much anyone who calls me if they're calling me at the outset of litigation meaning there's no case number nothing's been filed yet 
um, which is which is the right time to talk to me. Um, often people call me after some other attorneys like screwed up their case and I'm like, oh, great. But um, if they call me at the outset, I, I say, you know, without uh, I just in general to people without any specific um, details or facts about a particular situation, um, you know, you're looking at two to five years if we file this lawsuit it's contested and it goes to trial so you're going to have to wait two to five years for an outcome in 99 percent of the time and you're looking at 50 to 100 thousand dollars in attorney's fees um on the way that's the basic estimate i could give people nowadays probably more like seventy-five thousand. And I think you froze up there. Just got the good part about the money. I think you froze up. Um, hmm. Potential clients are frustrated by that, and the reason I can't give a better estimate, and I, I have an explanation for this, is that we what how much work i need to do depends on what other people do what the opposing party does the ne'er-do-well brother in in the example you brought what the court does which judge we have some judges are, i was just in court this morning and uh there was a kind of a newer judge in department five and uh she's implemented a policy that she made clear to me as well as to people who were um, appearing in another matter before mine that she requires some form of um, attempted informal resolution prior to setting a case for trial. So every judge handles their department their own way. I think that particular policy is probably a good policy in at least 90% of the cases, um, you know, but th these things all depend if, if uh, if if the opposing party who was digging their heels in serving uh sets of discovery left and right on you i mean it's going to take some time to respond to all of that draft responses thoughtfully and carefully and do these sorts of things and you know there might be motion work required um so it's it's all it's all um it's all real specific to each case but what you can guarantee is it's going to be you know, at tens of thousands of dollars at the low end um, to take a case to trial. Uh, now, most cases don't get to trial and they end up settling somewhere along the way. Um, and I always push for that and I try to get everybody to do to do that. But, you know, when one side's unreasonable or or the opposing parties are just so far away um, that they're unable to negotiate it's it's inevitable so after i call you up on the phone about my ne'er-do-well brother and you give me that speech it's 50 to seventy-five thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars is two to five years i pass out i get recitated recitated and i wake up and i go okay fine i have money i'm committed to this um uh how much up front because I, I do know sometimes a, a litigation attorneys take 
uh, on contingency. Uh, some require a certain amount of money up front to cover expenses or out-of-pocket expenses. So, what is, and, and again, I'm not looking for a trade secret, so you're welcome to give me a kind of a general rule in the industry. What's a general rule that somebody should expect to, you know, write a check for to get the process started? My, can you hear me? Sorry. Yep. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so in terms of like the upfront costs, um, there are the market and the range that I've seen and I've heard from clients and kind of what I charge is that the retainer is usually the attorney requires a retainer. Well, first, let me talk about the, the contingency cases and stuff like that. So uh, there's kind of two fee structures generally. There's hourly, um, which is how I operate and how my firm op operates. And there's an hourly rate. I've seen hourly rates, you know, back in 2014, when I started practicing law, I, I've seen like 200 at the low end and kind of 600 at the high end. Kind of nowadays, it's more like... Um, um, you know, it could be up to a thousand an hour and kind of on the lower end. I don't know. I I, I assume it's still maybe 200, but, um, you know, at least 200 um, in, in California or in Los Angeles County or Southern California. Um, and then there's the contingency. Contingency is basically you get a, um, the attorney gets paid out of what they recover and it's a certain percentage by law that percentage is capped at 50 percent um i don't do contingency matters and there are certain fields of law such as employment law on the plaintiff side personal injury law like car accidents almost every attorney in that field in my experience does it on contingency because it makes a lot of sense from a business model perspective in those fields I, I I know one attorney who does trust and estate cases on contingency. However, the upside for the client that's hiring them has to be seven figures plus. And right. uh, if 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 I encounter a situation where that makes sense, I can refer to that attorney. But if it's like that, their upside is five hundred grand. Um, they're not going to. Uh, I'm not going to be able to find a contingency attorney for them. Um, so, and then the, the, and the, the guys who do contingency, they're usually very good and they're usually uh, very wealthy because it's great if you uh, are good at it and know what you're doing. Um, but the, the, the hourly guys are kind of more schlubs, like, <laughs> you know, no, 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 in general. So, um, in terms of the upfront costs, um, kind of what I've observed in since 2014, kind of uh, practicing in this field is, so the retainer goes into what's called a client trust account. The attorney uh, will not hold the funds that are provided as the retainer in their business account or in their you know personal account. They deposit into a client trust account. The state bar of California, has um regulates the client trust account it's a very specific type of account a bank has to make that offering it's called an iolta or iolta account interest on lawyer trust account uh, is what those letters stand for and um and then let's say you give um 
$10,000 as a retainer and the attorney is charging, um, you know, uh, $500 an hour, spends two hours, then they'll, they'll bill the client uh, for the two hours, which is $1,000, and they'll either take it out of the $10,000 or the client will pay an additional $1,000 on top of the $10,000 and the returning just holds the retainer for all purposes until the representation is terminated. That is what's the, the type where the retainer is just held in the client trust account. It's not used to pay bills. That is called an evergreen retainer. Also, the range of retainers I've seen for these types of cases are probably like 5,000 for kind of the sole practitioner or someone who's just like trying to do it uh, is a pretty standard. Uh, or a smaller firm is a pretty standard retainer amount. Um, you know, that can go up to maybe 20,000 for smaller firms. And then for like the big boys, um, you know, it could get 50 or 100,000 as a retainer. But generally, the, um, the clients for them are, uh, you know, multi million dollar cases. So um, it prices, you know, the, the vast majority of people who have to go through probate are going to be um, probably not litigated and probably, you know, um, some sort of savings, I'd imagine, under 100 grand and a house. That, that, that's probably the most common asset mix or a very nominal amount of cash and an interest in the house. That's, that's probably the vast majority of people who die and pass wealth on uh, either without any sort of estate planning or through a trust or through a decedent estate or probate. Decedent estate and probate are interchangeable terms. Um, that you're, you're talking about kind of one real property and maybe some sort of life insurance benefits or cash. And those can, can be moved without the use of probate and we can talk about that more but just to answer your question i would say kind of for the general situation it's it, the range for a retainer is probably five to twenty thousand and not as you mentioned doesn't go to the attorney until they're billing for their work so they don't get all that money at once and additionally there's expenses there's filing fees there's paralegal services perhaps delivery fees service fees um publication fees uh that all go into the mix that come out of that money as well i think sometimes people feel like oh i wrote him a check for twenty thousand dollars and he they tried took the check deposited twenty thousand dollars and went for a party that night it doesn't really work that way um though i do think the attorneys tend to do a lot of the a good chunk of work right away so that first bill usually is pretty significant so let's talk about litigation um as part of the mix of your business and then i know you do estate planning uh conservatorships i know you do probate administration where it's not being litigated as well as litigation i know some attorneys only do litigation and don't do the others and you do both and i've heard both arguments so explain to me your decision in doing in addition litigation to state planning i.e avoiding probate as well as probate administration explain your 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 business choice on doing that wider range of work rather than just doing probate litigation how does that help you and how does it help your client Right. So the, there's there's kind of two topics there so that there's costs. So um, generally with me and my firm, I will apply the retainer funds to invoices as they come due. 
I will have the right to request the retainer be replenished, but generally I don't do that. I just kind of vet people, make sure they understand this could be the cost in the long term. And you know, you need to understand that if you if if you go down this path or you don't settle or things come up. And um, you know, if we can get an understanding on that, I don't mind carrying a smaller retainer or not carrying an evergreen retainer. And then when I do incur costs, I pay them and then I invoice the client, itemize the costs in the invoice and then reimburse myself at whatever I paid. Um, the, the cost in general, every filing fee, for example, in LA County is just under $500 to e-file that publication. You have to publish with a newspaper. If it's like a city like Los Angeles, it's usually a cheaper publication cost because it's very um, um, it's very integrated. The infrastructure is there. If it's some obscure small city, the publication costs can be higher. If you need to personally serve someone, you know, that can that can be a cost as well. So all of these things are kind of involved. And um, like I said, my firm's practice is all I'll pay it out of my business account and then I'll get reimbursed when I send out the invoice from the retainer fund. So the client, if they read their invoice, they'll know exactly how much of their retainer is going to what and where. And, um, you know, I, I think good billing practice is really important. And I always tell clients personally, you know, if you ever have a question about the bill, call me, talk to me about it. I don't charge for the time to explain the bill to you because we need to trust each other or this isn't going to work as an yeah. attorney-client relationship. Now, the second question you had was about, um, um, sorry, refresh my memory. Um, well, expenses uh, versus the total amount. Um, and um, what was the second one? I, I, I was so engrossed in the first one. Uh, I lost my track myself. Let me, let me, let me ask another one. First off, real quick, anybody watching, this is meant to be interactive. I see a couple of questions I'm gonna get to and we'll ask it, but feel free to put number one, any questions or raise your hand, let to make it interactive. Uh, and number two, if, if that's also, if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook on the live streams, bring your questions in there. We had a shout out from, uh, by the way, um, uh, Diller, we have a shout out from Jesse, who I think is actually the, the client or prospective client who introduced us. So he's watching on Facebook. Hey, Jesse, how you doing? So um, definitely feel free. Um, <laughs> so, um, okay. Uh, so now we talked about, oh yeah, I remember now, we talked about the advantages of doing uh, not just litigation, but also doing estate planning, which is avoiding right, right, litigation. Okay. And say planning to avoid probate. And to me, as a real estate agent, I think that's a good thing because you see the messes and then should theoretically be preventing those messes on your next client. Uh, um, but I know there are other attorneys who say, no, I just do litigation because I'm set up for that. I'm not really set up to do the administration. So explain to me kind of your thinking for yourself as a business person and then for your clients. Right. That was that was your that was the original second question. So the um, so when it comes to kind of my practice areas, um, so I kind of uh, grit my teeth in probate litigation in a trust case and a conservatorship case. And that that and they were overlapping issues. And I, I feel like I did pretty well um, in there and and I just kind of stuck to it. The firm I was working for at the time, like kept giving me the litigated cases to handle. 
And, um, you know, it just never really, really stopped from there. Um, and I, I felt like I understood it well. Um, but then you have a lot of uh, people, uh, maybe clients who have gone through the litigation with their parents' estate or something like that. Then they're like, well, I don't want this to happen to my kid. It's, you know, I, I can you do my estate plan? Or people just hear probate and they think wills, trusts, and they think you draft it. Now, I personally, in my firm, I do not draft the estate plans, but I advise and I have a co-counsel who I work with who does um, handles my estate planning drafting. He, he's the one who actually drafts it in my office. And um, and so it, it's just it's such an overlap and clients request it so often um, that I think it's 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 almost a necessity to mm -hmm. uh at least be able to help them with that. And um, so I, I, I had to I had to um, make arrangements for that. So, <laughs> well, one hand, I can see where clients would naturally request it and you want to help clients, you want to, you know, solve their problems. And then on the flip side, I can see where it's also a completely different skill set, what might make you a great drafter of the world's best estate plan might not help you when you're in probate litigation those are two right, different absolutely and then and then on, on the point of the kind of the differentiation with my firm is you know most estate planning firms do not do probate litigation at all so they don't see what what goes correct so i i mentioned i had a hearing this morning so um at the hearing this morning we're litigating a case i actually represent a brother against his brother right and um, their father did an estate plan with a certain estate planning attorney. And there were certain that the father who did the estate plan, he wished to treat his two sons unequally. So it was pretty foreseeable to me from the estate plan that there was going to be litigation once dad died because dad was treating the brothers unequally. So the brother who was treated less well than the other brother was going to sue once dad died. Now, there are certain things they sue to do to invalidate this trust amendment that was made. You can invalidate it, for example, based on lack of capacity. You can invalidate it uh, on the ground of what's called undue influence, which is defined generally as exerting influence or pressure on someone to such a great degree that it overcomes their free will. That's the definition of undue influence. So it was foreseeable. If I'm doing an estate plan, it's foreseeable to me that when you're like treating one kid way better than the other kid, that that's going to result in an amendment to this, uh, to a contest against this trust amendment that you made that's doing that. So what I would do is I would tell the person who's considering doing this trust amendment, hey, you're in your 80s, you're in your 90s, whatever the case may be, uh, hypothetically, you're in your 80s, for example, go see a doctor, get the doctor to say that you have complete capacity, you know, X, Y, Z, maybe I draft a letter for them, say, present this to your doctor, have your doctor sign this. Now we have really good records and documentation and a live witness in the form of a physician 
who can testify at trial and say, I evaluated this person. They have capacity them while they were alive. And in my opinion, as a physician, they have capacity. And I signed a letter to such effect. And then if the person says, this is too expensive, I don't want to go through this, or I don't want to, I don't want to deal with this, fine, but at least I advise them to do right. that. Right. Right. Um, and then and then and then the attorney can also do certain things. Maybe the son who uh is treated better um is here is is there in the room when dad is signing the estate plan documents. That's a big no-no. Right. That's that's something that shouldn't be done. The attorney should say, hey, get out, sit in the car. Uh, you know, I don't want to talk with you at all. I only want to talk with, you know, and, and sometimes estate planning attorneys don't do these things. And it just boggles my mind because I'm dealing with the mess and the fallout that's occurred. And I'm just like, gosh, I wish I had certain better facts, but that's right. not always the case. So, right. um, you know, when you use some, when, especially if you're going to do something, um, like treat children unequally or if you have um i think the the approach the the term de jure is a uh, blended family now if you have a blended family you know spouses bringing in kids from prior marriages especially with those kind of situations you want to hire an estate planner who's really um cognizant and sensitive of all the foreseeable lawsuits that are going to occur um, in these sorts of mess, um, not as traditional situations, let's say. And you can spend 90% of the fee, but that last 10%, because the plan wasn't done correctly, creates all the mess. Oh, right? yeah. that, the whole estate plan, if they just got the doctor's letter, would have avoided, but by not doing that, the statement has no real effect because you're still going to court to litigate the whole thing anyhow. I mean, it has an effect, but it didn't have the intended effect, which was probably to avoid litigation, I would think, uh, at its core. Um, right. And, 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 it, and, and then if you're representing the trustee who has to take over and, and clear, clean, clear this up or be the target of these lawsuits, and they have these documents, they have a doctor's note that says, you have great capacity. They have something from the estate planning lawyer that says, you know, the, 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 no one had anything to do with this. It was just me and the person I'm drafting the estate, uh, the estate planning documents for, um, it was vetted. Uh, they, they, they were of their free will. They, you know, they came in, they were alone. No one was in the room signing. You know, these are, these are like, I'm, I'm making the example like very, very bad, uh, just to illustrate kind of some of the faux pas. They're, they're, they, they, they do happen. I think they do happen, but generally um, um, they can be avoided with, with some experience and sensitivity to the things that can come up. But yeah, absolutely. And they might cost a little more, but the cost- A little more. A little, a little more. The cost relative to the cost of litigation after a person's dead, it, it it's like it's like ten to one or twenty to one. It's 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 not comparable at all. You want to make sure when you're alive, you're doing the estate plan correctly. And I go around. I've given presentations to um, you know different groups of professionals to um, um, facilities where uh, you know fifty five and older facilities. 
And I just, I, I try to encourage estate planning because I just, I just see the havoc that poor estate planning or no estate planning has um, after the person's dead. They're never going to see it, right? I'm going right. to see it. They're not going to see it. Right. Um, one of the areas that we come up with a lot as real estate agents before somebody passes is capacity. Mm -hmm. um, that it's not uncommon that, and I've had it happen where I, you know, get a phone call and I go out and meet somebody and they want to sell their house. We sign the papers. And I've literally had somebody call me that day or the next day and say, didn't you realize he didn't, you know, he, he was had dementia. He was crazy. I said, well, it was odd. I mean, I meet a lot of odd people. That's kind of life today is more varied than where I grew up, but he seemed to me to be coherent. Of course, you know, I went at 10 in the morning and maybe by two in the afternoon, he's not, or who knows what medication does to people. And, you know, I don't know his medical history. And so you might, my tendency is just to walk away and not, not get in that. But so how, how would you advise a real estate agent um, as far as uh, deciding um, if somebody has capacity, would you say, if you have any questions to walk away from it, would you say, that you know, should a real estate agent to list a property, should you know, ask them if they have an attorney, ask them for a medical letter, or, uh, or you know, how would you advise? Or have you been in cases of litigation where, you know, you were you're trying to invalidate a contact that was signed? I I have a, actually I have a, a probate case where, uh, literally, a dad who's in his late eighties is at the doctors, and Kaiser's doctor says, you know what, we he needs to have a conservatorship. He can't make his own medical decisions. Daughter starts the conservatorship. It's not done yet. Father signs a contract to sell multi-million dollar property. Um, and then, um, of course, the buyer jumped on it. That was a great deal. And, and the daughter's like, what do you mean? He's, we have a conservatorship. We were, they were in the queue to get to hear the hearing. And the buyer hires an attorney for the man who basically defeats the conservatorship effort. So the court determines it's not needed. So the contract is, is valid. And so you have these children really upset. Um, what, what, what advice would you give to real estate agents when you meet a client and there's any, and there's questions as far as capacity or what are some of the signs you would look for as an attorney yourself? What do you look for and say, ooh, this is a problem I need to back off here or you need to get some medical assistance? I think we froze up again. Oh, you're- There we go. I can hear you. Okay. Um, yeah, no, the, that that's a really good question. Um, I I for you know, I mean, I can't give legal advice in in this sort of format, but I can I could just tell you what I would do, right? Um, the the <laughs> are on the side of caution, right? You don't want to be accused of participating in any sort of elder abuse. Um, you know, I. And and I face this the similar dilemma all the time. Hey, you know, I don't know. Dad's kind of out of it. Mom's kind of out of it. We want to sell a house. Like, I I don't think she can make it through the transaction. Can you do a power of attorney for her? I'm like, yeah, if she has capacity to hire me, sure. But the fact that you've told me that it's questionable, I'm not going to do that without a doctor's letter. A, a recent, relatively recent doctor's letter, at the very least, and then if I talk to them and 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 I don't think as a lay you know lay person in the sense that I'm not a medical professional, as a lay person and I'm not comfortable dealing with them or I think there's something um, 
that they or I have some sort of honest suspicion, you know, you got to turn it down. They're, that It's just it's a bad idea. Now, if um, in that situation you were talking about, um, you know, I'm sure there were certain sort of uh, expedited procedures that could have been used to put a kind of a halt on these sorts of things. But um, maybe they were not practical at the time. I mean, you got it. People under the law, you're presumed to have capacity. There is a presumption that the person you're contracting with has capacity in general. Um, you can put on evidence to overcome that presumption, but generally we're in the starting place where, um, you know, there is no, there, there is capacity to, in the, in the starting place. Uh, of course, you know, if there's developmental disability, something like this, like it's going to be hard to justify um, any sort of belief on that. But but definitely you want to err on the side of caution yeah. um, and and. You want to you want to have something in place, and that's part of estate planning, too, like. be um and 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 a good estate plan can i don't know if it's just me but I, I think it's freezing up again yeah not just you not just yeah i think it's on his trying to conserve is going to fight it then you're in that same cost boat of 50 to 100 grand two to five years and uh it's going to be difficult uh, or more difficult than doing an estate plan yeah, I think you're, and I think as a real estate agent, we won't be dragged into that after the fact. It's, makes sense to be careful. Okay, a couple questions. We have a couple of waiting on for a while here. Uh, let me try to knock some of them out. Um, question: um, um, Talk about litigation funding. If somebody needs needs litigation, uh, and obviously it's going to cost them a lot of money. Um, are there options to borrow that money? Are there companies that finance those kinds of deals? And what does that look like? Um, I'm not aware there are kind of like several companies that do advanced costs for a probate or technically my understanding of kind of what they do is they will buy your inheritance or they'll buy a share of your inheritance while mm -hmm. the probate is pending but right. they usually won't make those sorts of loans if there's litigation involved right uh, it, it's it's much more difficult uh for a lender from a lender's perspective because it's just so risky. You you never know what's going to happen as the lender. They could be entitled to something. Uh, they could be entitled to half of a $10 million estate, but they could be found guilty of financial elder abuse, and then they are entitled to nothing because now they're an elder abuser, right? And you don't know how the judge is going to rule. I mean, we should have some predictability, but it would require such a great deal of investigation on the lender's part. And of course, not everybody is going to be forthcoming, especially someone who actually is an abuser. So, so I don't, I don't see that. I, I, I don't see it generally. I think the only way to get around the funding issue is to have a claim that's a very high dollar amount that it a contingency lawyer would want to take on 
And um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's unfortunate, but um, that's, that's the way it is. Um, and, and, and it's just, uh, it's something um, there's a market for it. And if, and if it was just so oversaturated, probably the price would come would would come down but it's just it's very technical it's it's not the easiest field of law to practice in and and not a lot of attorneys from my perspective i think get into it um this isn't empirical or anything it's just my observation but um yeah it's 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 tough to get funding um in lit litigated situations um however when there's no litigation and everyone's getting cooperating with one another all the beneficiaries and heirs it's going to make everyone's life a lot easier so <laughs> sometimes you got to just know when to hold them know when to fold them kind of thing and walk away and you know you you, you might not want to invest and like I said a lot of clients call me and I talk them out of out, out of hiring me I'm just I'm just I just tell them look there's just so many unknowns there's so many risks because I don't want them to hire me and get disappointed and have unrealistic expectations about what I can do. Right. And often when they're coming to me, they don't know all the facts. We have to delve into the discovery process. We have to subpoena hospital records, medical records. We have to subpoena, um, you know, communications between the person who's supposedly done the abuse and, and, we need to find all that evidence because it's not what you know, it's what you can prove. That's one of the most common things I say during initial consults to clients. And uh, so there's always risk involved. I don't think it's risks that lenders have figured out a way to price and take on yet in the litigation context. I think you're right. It's expensive to prove all that. I will say just in passing, I do probate advances. I arrange them for my clients, both through a company that I broker through as well as other companies. So you can, anybody who needs, you know, $10,000, $20,000 uh, uh, money for filing a probate, routine matters. Uh, that's something that I do regularly. And I do about two of those a month. And glad any real estate agent on this call I do get probate.cash every Wednesday morning. I do a, a call and I'm a little mastermind group on that subject. If you're interested, reach out to me. The litigation, I do know that there's banks that finance litigation, but they're really financing the firm. They know the guy every year bills and makes $2 million and he goes as a profit of whatever it is. And they know based on that, they can give a credit line and then the attorney can use that. Uh, and I also know that the attorney may have other settlements that are structured over five, 10 year periods. So they know that money's coming in uh, as well as there's liens on properties. And so, you know, that's a different picture than just lend me a hundred thousand dollars so I can sue somebody. Nobody's in that business that I'm aware of. I think with the exception, maybe like workman's comp or kind of the, the personal injury where there's kind of a, a basic value of the case walking in the door to some degree, but not, not what we're talking public litigation. Like right. I say, it's so complicated. And, and, the, and the lenders who are, who are giving those attorneys lines of credit, those attorneys have had decades probably of experience. Yes. Cases, yes. Asking the right. Yes. And yes. they will drop 10 cases and take yes. cases. Yes. That is the one case that is a winner. There's a little, there's yes. a risk. And then they're, um, what to do, not some banker who's right. not, you know, trained in probate law or whatever. So, right. so, so that makes total sense to me. Um, right. And that's, that's really interesting and probably a profitable niche if you have the right partners. 
Well, plus the bank also gets the attorney's you know, trust account money. And so a lot that doesn't have interest on it, they love those accounts. And so there's a number of other other services that go along. I mean, I've been in that business and there's negotiations. There's a lot that goes into that. It's like I said, it's not like they're going to lend somebody $200,000 to go sue their brother in a probate litigation. It's not, it's never really quite that simple. It might sound like that. Okay. And then somebody asked, do you mind telling us, do you represent the better son or the other son? Uh, that's on Facebook. I think, I, no, I think every tree thinks they have the right guy and every tree thinks the other guy is the wrong guy. Do you guys ever get together and laugh about that? Like, I thought I had the bad guy. You had the bad guy. <laughs> but you all think right. you have the right I one. Please represent the good guys. Always. Exactly. But every attorney says that. I mean, literally, Jack Lapidus is attorney does real estate law. He said the same thing. Every attorney I've ever interviewed says that. Meanwhile, there's two attorneys in every case. So if you guys ever got in a room and had to have an honesty challenge, I'd love to see how they're. No, I'm no not it's only because you you hang out with good lawyers and not bad lawyers, right? No, I hang out with you, Jack, and I pretty much any attorney that will talk to me. I'll I'll put on the calls. <laughs> no, thanks. That's true. that's probably true. I like to think that's true. I like to think I deal with honest ones. Okay, let's get some specifics on uh, on real estate. You know, like I said, I mentioned to you earlier that just today I was in the LA County Bar listserv. I'm an affiliate member, and I like to see what the attorneys talk about. And one of them was asking about. Um, you know, with COVID, less traffic in courts, do you need to go to court uh, in person as the attorney, he was asking, on a court confirmation sale? And just for those who don't know, in LA County and in California, when you have a sale that needs court confirmation, theoretically, a buyer can walk in the door. Uh, there's certain criteria. They have to be have a cashier's check for a certain 10% uh, of the overbid amount made out to the state, and they have to be willing to bid and, and buy the property without any contingencies. So theoretically, an attorney should be there to check the check, make sure it's made out for the right amount and take possession of it so it doesn't walk away. Um, if they want to vet the person, they do that. And, if, and with attorneys on video, I'd represent a buyer as we go to court and, and the attorney's not there. Not only could the attorney, I think, not do their job completely, but the judge would get mad. They're like, well, the judge would think I'm here and now we're going to wait for you to text and phone call and all that, and you're holding up the court. The one thing I find about court is like judges, it's like a downhill railroad. Like, don't stop the train. <laughs> Let the judge know you're stopping the train. Like, blame it on somebody else or get out of the way because it's going downhill. What's your what's your advice when a, uh, to an attorney? And what's your advice to a real estate agent as far as court confirmation? Can that be, I know it can be handled outside of the court. Do you recommend they show up on the day of anyhow? Yeah, so, so court confirmation, information um pretty much it's well there's always a way around court confirmation you can always post a bond you can always have the funds um uh, tied up and and subject to court order put in a blocked account these sorts of things so i try to avoid court confirmation other attorneys they think it's great because you get bidding wars and that and that can happen and and I think it's it's really it's a it, it should be a collaborative process between the fiduciary, meaning the person handling the estate and or the trust or whatever uh, holds the asset, the attorney as well as the um, the real estate agent. Because if the real estate agent, their job is to sell, their job is to get the highest price possible for the client. So if they believe that connections, the way the property is is going to be um 
best served in terms of getting the highest price through a court confirmation process, then go that route. If it's not, if, 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 because I deal with the litigation side, right? So court confirmation process is just another opportunity for some ne'er-do-well heir or beneficiary to make a complaint out of nothing and increase the attorney's fees and costs. So generally, as the litigator, I try to avoid that. My clients try to avoid that because they don't want to get caught up in more litigation than they have to be. Um, in terms of non-litigated cases, um, you know, I've seen I've sat in courts and I've seen two two buyers just go back and forth and bid up the price a couple extra hundred grand. And that's great for, you know, who's ever selling it. And if you can get that or people just showing up unexpectedly, I've I've seen brokers come in there. They've never done a court confirmation. They're representing the buyer there you know, a nightmare to deal with and they have all these demands and they don't understand why there isn't a sale contract. And, you know, I mean, and it's tough. And sometimes you have to deal with people uh, like that because that is the, 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 the best situation. I would just say to brokers, it is your job as the broker to know what you have to do at the, those hearings. It is not the attorney for the trustee's job to advise you. You're not their client. You know, a lot of brokerage firms, they have their own attorney that gets involved that maybe they have on retainer um, to advise them of certain situations and things like that. And that's that I think is a good, good model, because uh, I, I've had interactions with brokerage firms and they have kind of in-house counsel or someone they contract to. And they're knowledgeable about these things and they advise their brokers. So their broker isn't making any sort of mistakes like this. For example, I had to sell in a conservatorship a commercial building in Monterey Park. And the broker showed up. He had the cashier's check. He had the right amount. But it was made out to his clients. And I'm like, this is not <laughs> this is not okay. And and exactly kind of what you have what what happened as you described kind of happened. The judge wasn't upset at me. But we had to come back instead of doing it in the morning. We had to come back again in the afternoon. So the judge was nice and gracious enough to give us an afternoon slot to let us to let that broker remedy his issue of making out well, a cash check out to his own client to buy to buy a property. That's probably only going to happen if you, as the attorney for the state, support that. Right? They're not. The judge isn't going to do it unless. At least in my experience, they're going to turn to you and say, "Do you want to come back?" And if you're on board with it, they'll go along with it. And if you're not, the judge is not going to do the right thing unless the attorney's on board with it. At least that's what I've seen. Is that your experience? Yeah, I mean, it helps. I mean, it, just having a good reputation and a judge that's been in the courts long enough to be comfortable mm -hmm. doing things like that. Because uh, you know, maybe a newer judge or a less experienced judge like won't even think of that as an option. And mm -hmm. Um, you know, that happens too. And then just like, well, you know, you don't have the cashier's check. You didn't transfer it to the seller. I'm going to dismiss the petition. And if right. you want it, come back, file a petition again, notice it again. And, you know, you don't do that. that. That really is, is, is a tough break for, and I've seen that too. I've seen, I've, I've sat in and seen that now in terms of how have things changed, in the last three years since all the shutdowns um yeah i i i, I tend to 
I like it because I don't have to physically go to court anymore. I could just call in on the phone. And I think the vast majority of attorneys do that for status hearings or even uh, sale confirmation hearings. But you are right. There, there, there needs to be a transfer of the initial deposit, whatever that amount is. And yeah. somebody needs to be there to accept it. And somebody needs to be there to give it. So so yeah. certainly makes sense for um you know, at least the brokers to go down to the court. I think I think mm. that would probably make the most sense um, uh, for for all involved to have the buyer's broker and the seller's broker there. Um, maybe the attorney, if the, the 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 seller's broker is not as familiar, because if the cashier's check is made out wrong, things mm. like this, or maybe they can be coached or prepped ahead of time by the attorney. But ultimately probably best for the seller their attorney is there because they're ultimately going to be responsible for all these things well at minimum somebody needs to be there and if, if the attorney and the, and the realtor work together well great and if not somebody's got to be there i think, I think is what you're saying the other, right. the other question in the in the bar listserv today was it was just interesting today I had some good questions was one of the um attorneys lamenting the term probate expert now for the for information my website's the la probate expert and and I always tell people that that my status as expert is not based on a destination, but a process. I think a real expert is somebody who's always looking to improve, always looking to learn more and grow their business. The attorney was pointing out that you can get a little thing for your email uh, certificate for about two hours class, and that they don't really seem to know much. What what do you see when when you're trying to vet a real estate agent for your client? Maybe your client recommends somebody, and you realize it's gonna be a little more complicated, but you want to know. Does this realtor really have what it takes? What are the things either you look for or what questions do you ask to vet the attorney to, I'm sorry, to vet the realtor to be able to um, properly assess for your client if they're good or not? Um, yeah, it, it's tough. Oh man, that was a money question too. And we lost him. Okay. <laughs> either he didn't want to answer that or he has a bad connection. Hi, hi Bill. Are yeah, you oh, there you are. Oh, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know what's going on. There you are. Okay. Got it. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. So, so this is the thing in my experience, I'm not a very pushy person. Um, you know, I have enough <laughs> fights to handle, um, in, in, in my business. So I try to kind of minimize conflict wherever I can, cause I just see how destructive it is. But, um, you know, in this context, especially, it can be very good in other contexts. But, um, you know, it usually they have a broker by the time they get to me and they, you know, this was their mom's friend and the person that she would have chosen, you know, and it's just like, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's, I just, like I said in the answers to, the, to, to, to a prior question, don't ask me like, what do I have to do as the broker to make sure I'm fulfilling all the legal obligations that I have to sell the house? Because it's like, I'm not your attorney. That's not my job to know. It's always better to use somebody who's familiar with probate for a probate sale, for a trust sale, right. even outside of a probate sale, even a trust sale. I know there's certain disclosures that need to be made up front to uh to the to the agent's client as well as to the buyer 
Um, you know, they, and 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 it's also helpful to know things about like lease pendants. Uh, I always try to tell the there's always certain things I try to do. Um, I think um, one of the attorneys in the gallery kind of brought it up in one of their comments. Uh, check the title. Check the title. Do a preliminary title report. Pay a hundred hundred fifty dollars to see what the title company says title is because I can look at the deeds and I can have my opinion on what title is or what title should be but at the end of the day and for practicality purposes what title is is what the title company says it is because they're the ones who are going to issue the title insurance and it's not expensive to have a preliminary title report done often brokers with good connections and good networks they know title officers they can get it done for free um but even if you have to pay for it it's usually like under two hundred dollars and it's and you really want to know if there's a title problem before you go into escrow before there's a contract with time of the essence and consequences if you don't if you aren't able to complete your end of the sale as the seller um because that's going to give rise to problems for the seller and, and that's the last thing anybody wants so you know it, it's it, it it it's great that you know you know you have a friend or a relationship but yeah there's definitely a very notice noticeable difference from my perspective of using a broker who knows probate versus one who's never done a probate or this is their first probate and they're just asking me inappropriate questions and things like that and it's just it shouldn't it's it it it's going to be beneficial to all involved to use somebody who knows probate that's that's the well, end of the day well let me offer you if you find a realtor who doesn't send them to me i'll coach them up for you at no cost and all of my uh cases we get a prelim right away for free to this state because you're 100 right it only matters what the title company says will happen and i had a case recently where a big title company had a prelim with a long old uninsured deed and they were saying well we'll clear it up but we'll wait till the end i said no no you need the report needs to be corrected now before we go down the road because i don't want to tell my attorney while we're in escrow oh we can't close and they wouldn't budge and i just really found another company who underwrote it yeah gave me, and i changed and and the guy called me up upset i said well you're upset you're the one who's gonna waste my time and my client's time and that can't happen so there's a difference between tile company reps also and tile company reps that really know probate and can get these things done so um yeah and title is is just i it's a nightmare it's 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 a horror i i i can't say enough bad things about them they're they're all billion dollar companies they never pay out on anything because they make it so difficult to get title insurance i feel like right. they take no risk whatsoever any right. risk they 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 they're not comfortable but they they get a premium it's like you're it's getting a premium for a risk if something happened 40 years ago we don't have some sort of record to to justify it and nobody's come after it for 40 years and you're going to refuse to issue title insurance over it's like i don't know it's it's they the demands of title companies can be very unreasonable that's why you have to kind of nip this in the bud as soon yep. as possible and work on it because the stuff that they ask for at times in difficult situations it could take months years to get and right. you don't you don't want to get a buyer involved or a potential right. buyer to sit through that and be frustrated and they're crazy broker whoever you know hopefully not but <laughs> 
the, the client that introduced us, those are two deeds, about two and a half million dollars. There's no question as a real estate professional, as a former expert witness, they were deeded wrong. They should not have transferred title. We And we had written proof. Now, maybe not enough to win in court. That's a different question. But to anybody who reads the documents, it's clear. The problem is to prove it in court would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Meanwhile, they got their premium and their premium dollars are sitting in the bank accumulating money and they've got a building uh, and they're and they're, they wouldn't even talk to you about the problem. They're not even interested. You know, any other insurance company, you have an accident, they look at it and they have to settle. But some of these top companies, I don't understand how that works either. Um, oh yeah, and they'll and they'll and they'll hire lawyers and fight you oh, yeah. on, on on your claim and make oh, yeah. sure that and they 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 know what they're doing. Okay. So yes, uh, sorry uh, for any title officers listening, but this is just our experience. With yeah, people. yeah. Sorry, sorry, but not sorry. Okay, I got some questions. Been hanging here for a while. We're going to wrap up here in a few minutes. Let me knock out real quick. Real estate commissions on a probate. I know there's a local rule in LA County court uh, confirmation sales, no more than 5% for homes, no more than 10% for vacant land. Are you aware of any other limits on commissions as it relates to probate listings or is it what the buyer and seller agreed to? I mean, the uh, seller and the listing agent agreed to? Um, yeah, I mean, there isn't um, a hard and fast limit such as the LA County local rule on, on, on the broker commission, um, but there is a limit in a sense on the trustee or the uh, executor because they have to act in the best interest of the estate. And if conventionally brokers charge 6%, some brokers now maybe they charge 5% because they're the real estate uh, prices increased. Um, you know, it, you, you can't go too outside of the norm or the market. Right. Um, right. So, so it, yeah, can can the trustee like give a broker 20% and contract and and then it gets paid out of escrow? Sure, but you know, they're they're really opening themselves up to getting sued. Um, but but I mean, unless there's as far as I know, I, I don't think there's any laws that would limit limit the commissions. I just want to give a quick shout out. Alan Poles on the on the call here, California Best Title. They're the company I took too. I got this, you know, marketing email from him, and I had this problem with this top company. I was going around and around and around with them. And I said, you know, Alan, take a look at this one. If you guys and I explained the case, why I thought the top company was wrong. If you guys can underwrite it, I'll counsel and open this one with you and I'll open, I'll give you a second one as a thank you. And he turned around and got it done within a day. He he got it done in a new prelim before the old company guy called me and said, why'd you guys cancel? That's right. Like, well, I'll, I'll have to get your information from him because yeah. a flexible a title officer is unheard of. <laughs> well, I don't know how flexible the title officer is. As far as I know, Alan may have tied him down, put a gun in his mouth and made him do it. Personally, I don't care as long as they ensure the title. That's Alan's job, right? Right. What's, what's great about my title company, though, is that the guy who runs my title company is a, a very experienced attorney that did a lot of underwriting title work, uh, ran a whole underwriting department at a major title company. So he's got plenty of title law experience and real estate law experience. There we go. So so that's you have to have a winning team. Huge. And, they're the ones who just sitting. They're the ones just in a bank vault counting their money. So, anyhow, uh, Alan, thanks for your help on that. Yeah. Okay. And um, let's wrap up a couple more questions. I see a bunch of people with your information in the, in the chat box. Make sure you save the chat box before we leave here. And if you want to catch somebody, reach out to me. Um, let's see. No, 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 fine. 
Um, okay, if a property is owned by a trust and the trust is lost, that's, this is a common problem that I get, which is the property is deeded in a trust. Oh, great, it's a trust, you avoid probate. Nobody can find the trust. What's the what's the solution to that? Uh, unfortunately, more common experience. I think the more estate plans that get done, the right. more lost trust okay. agreements there are. Yeah, I mean, right, yeah. And that's that's important, right? To um, with estate planning too. That is also another problem that comes up often in litigation. Handling a case now, it's like mm -hmm. the, uh, you have the trust, right? But the pages that say who the beneficiaries are and who the trustee is, uh, is once the settler dies, you know, all the important stuff, it, it's 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 missing all of a sudden, right? So um, yeah, that that happens. So it just, it, if the trust is lost, then yeah, you can petition to have it reverted to the estate. But then if, if the trust was created by two people, Whose estate does it does it go to? Does it go to the survivors? Is it separate property of one spouse or the other's community property? It I, I mean, I that it, it's just a it's just a big can of worms. Now, if if you if you have enough information about the trust, you can also petition the court to create the terms of the trust. Let's say you know the attorney who drafted the trust, they don't have the um the the actual original trust document it's lost but they have notes or or they have a recollection like this is what mom and dad wanted this is what they told me this is what the trust said i don't i don't remember um you know i don't have the actual trust document but this was said well now you can petition the court to reform the terms of the trust or or basically recreate the trust it it's it's um there's various options um you know, I mean, to to do a petition that's just going to require one hearing where everybody's getting along, I, I would say, you know, 15000 on the high end in attorney's fees is probably reasonable uh, as an estimate without like further information. But um, but then if it's reverting to the estate, now you have to open an estate. So you have to open the estate first so that there is an estate representative to to transfer it to or there's a personal representative to transfer the trust property or what would have been the trust property to well it's not like there's always something and thank goodness that gives you delare uh work to do for the foreseeable future <laughs> and to continue to provide for you and your family your growing family by the way you have your first child boy or girl uh, my my son Leo was born. That's right, Leo. February eighteenth. So he's uh, he's about nineteen year nineteen days old today. So uh, wow, it's, wow. it's it's just been great uh, to experience parenthood. But it's been very uh, uh, the sleep, the lack of sleep, I should say. Yeah, but you know it's a joy and and. Um, yeah, thankfully. Uh... It's even affecting his internet. <laughs> Said by somebody who's lost his sleep and whatnot. So, so that's a blessing for us. Yes. So, so that's a blessing for us. And and uh, anyone who hasn't had kids yet, 
uh, I encourage you to do so because uh, you don't know what you got into what you got in you until you do it because it really it, it can have the potential to bring a lot out of you a lot of love and ability that you otherwise thought didn't know you that you had well enjoy and should be much joy and look forward to hearing continued good news from you and your family Dilla, thank you so much for being on our call today Thanks, Bill, and, and thank you for everyone uh, for, for their questions and, and uh, hospitality. And if you want to get a hold of a dollar to talk about estate planning, conservatorships, probate, or litigation, which is a specialty, it's lionheartlegal.com is the website. Lionheartlegal. It's interesting, his son's name, Leo the Lion, and Lionheartlegal is his law firm and has his contact info there if you want to get a hold of him. And I know we covered a lot of stuff today. I'm, I'm a little over time, so I, I'm sorry about that. I enjoyed uh, speaking to him, uh, but uh, we went a little late. For those of you who are in the LA area, we have the lareic.com, Larrick, um, the LA County Real Estate Association investors, starting in about an hour and a half in the Culver City area at the Iman Center. Go to lareic.com. That's free, and there's free parking if you get there early enough. I'll be there as a vendor and podcasting it as well. And then don't forget on Facebook, I have Probate Experts this is our free probate group. If you have questions, comments, if I can get you questions from this call today, feel free to put it in there. Promote my other calls on there Tuesday. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Wednesday, we have probate. Getprobate.cash is Wednesday mornings, 8.30. You can get details at probate experts or text me or call me. I'm on social media at Bill Gross EXP. Thank you, everybody, for a great call. Again, thank you. Have a great week, everybody. We'll talk to you soon.